Hey, big boxers. Welcome to On the Shelf, a program that is dedicated to helping you get your products into a major big box retailer. Tim here with you, helping you navigate the pitfalls of product placement in a big box retail environment. Hope you guys are having a fantastic Monday. Looking forward to hearing everything that is going on with you guys and looking forward to your questions this week and can't wait to hear what's going on. Don't forget, uh, Facebook group on the shelf now. Please go there and hit join. We're looking forward to getting you into the conversation. So today, uh, you're not going to have to hear from just me. I know you're super excited about that, but we have a fantastic guest that uh, we just had. Man, we just had a really great conversation. Her name is Jane, Jane Mossbacker Morris, and she is the founder and CEO of the company To The Market. Now, To The Market is this cool, new, socially inspired business that connects basically artists and groups around the world with consumers and businesses seeking social impact products. So, and I'm not going to like take it all away. I'm going to let Jane explain it all and let her, you know, explain her background. Cause she's got some cool stuff. Uh, you know, she worked for the state department, counterterrorism. I mean, she's done some stuff. She's been around, she's killing it. And the reason that we're, we're kicking this off, uh, with Jane is because one of the things, one of the new type of episodes that we're going to be rolling out is some success stories. Some people that are doing what you guys want to do and actually killing it at it. And they've climbed the mountain and now they're on the backside of that and they're really getting things done. And I wanted to, you know, bring to you guys some inspiring stories, some people that have really been where you are at and felt the struggle, heard the nose. And Jane is one of those people and she's doing great. And her business is doing great. We really want to bring that to you. So I'm not going to wait any longer for you guys to hear from her. So let's get right into it. Hey, Jane, welcome to the program. So glad to have you on. I'm so thrilled to be on. You know, we don't, I know that we don't know each other that well. We were kind of introduced uh, by a mutual acquaintance. And so just before we hit record, we were kind of getting to know each other. And so I hate to ask you to kind of do it all over again. Um, but, uh, our big boxers out there. So our listeners are called big boxers. They, they range from, uh, entrepreneurs trying to develop a product and get it into big box retail, uh, to a lot of, uh, very successful Amazon sellers that are actually trying to diversify onto, um, brick and mortar retail. So that's kind of gives you a, a little bit of a, um, uh, a lay of the land, so to speak, as far as who might be listening. And then there, of course, there's people out there that have an idea and they're thinking about it and they're trying to figure out. And, and so they're kind of doing their research and that makes up um, a huge part of, of our audience. But if you could, um, give us a little bit of background on you and what you've done in the past. And, um, I'm super excited uh, because I've wanted to do a, what's the lack of a better word, kind of a success podcast. So uh, uh, kind of featuring people that have done what a lot of our listeners want to do and kind of how they, they've done it. And this is kind of going to be one of the first ones of those. So I'm, I'm excited to do it. Well, awesome. Well, I'm honored. I'm honored to, to get to share my story. Yeah. So start, uh, yeah. Let, let us know kind of how you got into this and what it is and, and, and uh, tell us all about it. Yeah. So, um, I started to the market two and a half years ago, um, really based on identifying needs and, and opportunities, which I think is is critical to creating product that has value to the consumer or value to other businesses. Um, I started my career in a totally different sector. I actually worked in the government. I worked in the U.S. Department of State in national security. So I was focused on counterterrorism. So, you know, completely 180 um, of being in retail. But what that did is it allowed me to travel the world and be exposed to communities in different countries and learn about different um, cultural challenges that I was seeing and also learn about different markets that I was spending time in. And one of the markets that I was spending time in because I was working a lot with women in developing communities was really the artisan industry. And the artisan industry um, is fascinating because it's huge. It's the second largest economy in the developing world. So agriculture 
is number one, artisan is number two, and it's dominated by women. And yet we don't really, I think, um, in many, you know, many Western countries really see how big the industry is because unlike agriculture, which I would argue has been um, sort of more meaningfully connected to big business, meaning small batch farmers are producing coffee that makes its way into Starbucks or Pete's coffee or a blue bottle. And these, these retailers have figured out how to communicate to the consumers, um, why it's worth paying a little bit more to work with the small batch maker, what the story is behind the small batch maker. And we as consumers really appreciate that. And we connect to that story. And we haven't really seen that as much on the artisan side. So on the, so on the sort of like fashion type of product, home good type of product side. And so I, I began working um, around these artisans and really um, became convinced that there was, you know, a growing interest not only on the supply side to connect into the global markets, meaning that these artisans were really interested in getting into the stores um, in the United States or, or in other countries, but also on the supply side, or rather on the demand side, that consumers were increasingly interested in product with purpose and product that had a more transparent supply chain and product that had um, storytelling associated with it. And especially, I think that's the case for millennials and Gen Z, who really feel like their products are a reflection of who, who they are and what they believe. And so I started this business really for two reasons. One is because I felt like there was an amazing economic development story here that we could actually provide economic opportunities for vulnerable communities, many of whom are women around the world that are incredibly talented, but haven't been fully engaged, I think, by formal economies. And then also deliver um, an incredible experience to consumers and to businesses who are buying on behalf of consumers that are increasingly interested in looking for this type of product, but have a really hard time finding it. And even if they find that product, they have a hard time having the bandwidth to oversee the manufacturing of that product, have it delivered properly into the channels. Um, and so that's really what To The Market does is we act as that connector and that convener. Hats off to you. Uh, I really applaud that. Of course, I would love to dig into the counterterrorism part of your life, but we're not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a, like you said, contrast, right? Oh, so, hey, I was in counterterrorism, and then I decided to go into, you know, artisan work and get stuff into retail. Ooh, you know, super big differential there. But be before when we were talking, um, it popped into my head when you were telling me what you guys do, and you just confirmed it, which is, um, I was thinking millennials are really, you know, of course, now the biggest demographic in the U.S. And I would think that they would be just gravitating towards this product because you're right. They're super not brand loyal, but they do want to know what the brands that they buy are standing for. And so they're willing to, to you know, go out on a limb and try something new. Um, because, again, like I said, they don't have this, like my grandfather, you know, everything in the house had to be GE or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have that anymore. They're really looking for a story that they can attach to, something that they can share on social, feel really good about, tell their friends about. And so it sounds like you guys have that real good uh, click there with that. I think so. And I'm actually a millennial. Um, and so I can absolutely relate to feeling like, I want the product um, that I put on my body um, in addition to the product I put in my body, meaning the food that I'm eating, to reflect my values. And so I think, you know, I, I think that that trend is here to stay, at least for the next several generations, that it's moving away from it's nice to have some sort of social component to moving towards you need to have a social component. Yeah. And geez, I mean, if you were to listen to, you know, the litany of podcasts before this one, my listeners would tell you that, um, that really I beat them over the head with, uh, it's not so much that it's great to have social these days. If you don't have social, you're not really in the market anymore. And, and more and more big box retailers, the targets of the world are asking me, you know, tell me what you guys are doing socially, which, you know, five years ago would never ever have come out of a buyer's mouth they would not have cared what we were doing socially and, and how we were doing it and how that related to them but today big box buyers are wanting to connect with companies that have a story because products are 
maybe not your products or the type of products that you're working with, but other products are pretty readily available for buyers. You know, they can go overseas, they can go on Alibaba, whatever. Uh, they, 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 can, they can grab pretty much anything they want. What they can't get and what they really want these days is companies that they can get behind, companies that they can piggyback on and utilize the connections that those companies already have through social. And so, um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm in super agreement with you. And, and probably with what you're doing, you know, that social component is, is probably driving your awareness, I would think. It is. I mean, and you made a great point about people feeling more compelled to share and talk about the product that you are providing them because of that social com- sort of storytelling element. I mean, what's, you know, for example, we did, we do a lot of corporate gifts and a lot of times our corporate partners will use our products for marketing swag. So they will actually send our products to influencers in connection with um, whatever good they're trying to promote. So for example, last Mother's Day, we did a partnership for uh, with General Mills cereals. And um, we did one this Mother's Day as well. But last Mother's Day, um, we created a custom bag for them to put a box of cereal in that they then sent out to all of their top online influencers. And when you think about it as a brand, so if I'm General Mills, that's a much more compelling social share. If I'm the blogger to say this bag, the bag that we happened to design was 100% organic cotton and it was made by human trafficking survivors. That's much more interesting for me as a blogger to share on my social feed than a picture of me eating a bowl of cereal, <laughs> um, which is like how many, you know, like how many shots of cereal can I possibly like put on my social feed and not feel like it's a super promotional and uninteresting. Um, so I think, it's, it's highly shareable when you have that story. And then what's interesting, too, is from, like, the corporate side when you're looking at marketing swag, I think we're having this sort of um, reformation in our thought process whereby it used to be that, that corporates, especially who were handing out a lot of swag. So, like, think about consulting firms who are handing out products, you know, pins and tote bags and, you know, fill-in-the-blank junk they're realizing that, you know, just handing out product with their logo on it just to have, you know, the person you give it to throw it away or leave it in the hotel room or whatever it is, that's really not doing you much good. And what is it saying about how they feel about you and your brand? Right. And, and so when you're giving them product that not only they want to use because it's functional, but they also want to say, oh, and by the way, this product was made by this, you know, this community or it helps this community. And then they associate that feeling with you know, the brand, that's, you know, that's very powerful. So I have a question. I want to frame it the right way because I don't want it to come off the wrong way. But, you know, quality assurance. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you have your products made in, you know, China or whatever, and, you know, a lot of times retailers will send out their buyers to these uh, factories to um, make sure that they're being made the way that uh, the company told them that they were being made. And I would imagine that uh, for you, quality assurance is and, and your story has to be so together because if a company is going to stick out and say, hey, look, yeah, this is what we're doing and we're partnering with this person. You know, there's so many phonies out there right now that, mm-hmm. would, that would easily take, you know, some purse and have it like, you know, made off in, uh, in China and then try to use some, you know, some poor, unfortunate um, generation of people, their story to try to sell it. So how, mm-hmm. do, you ma- how do you manage that keeping and, uh, and, and, uh, geez, like I said, I'm struggling, uh, kind of t- telling your story and, and making sure that, that it's all kosher, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's great. And it, I, I heard two questions. One was on quality control and one was about, it sounds like authenticity. Um, and I think both of them are really important, um, issues. So on the quality control, um, what we found is that you know, just as if we were vetting a factory, we vet um, we vet our producers and we go through a sampling process the same way that one would do at a traditional factory. And then, you know, you, you really, um, it's that vetting in advance that allows you to feel confident or not in the production capacity and the quality control of your producer. I think, you know, one of the, there are lots of artisan groups out there, just like there are lots of factories out there that don't have strong quality control mechanisms in place. And those would be examples of ones that aren't, you know, aren't a good fit for us as a, as um, to the market, but wouldn't be, you know, somebody that necessarily 
you know, anyone would want to partner with. So you can have, you know, ethical and unethical producers that have quality control issues. I think for us, it's just a function of, um, you know, making sure that we're doing the proper vetting and then this proper sampling and that, you know, one of the, the sort of tactics that we use to mitigate the risk of, of having a huge order that turns out poorly is to not give a producer a large order until they've proven out smaller orders. Um, so that seems to be something that's worked well for us, whereby we've, you know, sort of scaled our um, engagement with different producers. On the authenticity side, I think that's such a good point because you're absolutely right. You know, just as like five to 10 years ago, there was the beginning of like the environmental movement and people started doing things called greenwashing where people um, were really looking at the marketing opportunity rather than whether the product was really genuinely better for the environment. I think there's absolutely that um, that dynamic with regards to some sort of social impact um, layer. I think the most common thing that people do is they choose to do sort of a give back component. So they say, okay, if I sell this at retail, I'm going to, I'm going to put on the, you know, let's pretend that it's like a bottle of shampoo. I'm going to uh, pledge that I'm going to donate proceeds um, to X shelter um, to X group of shelters in the U S to help domestic violence victims. Let's pretend that that's sort of the give back. And you know what? That's better than nothing to decide that you're going to make some sort of donation. But I think that as um, as this becomes more common, people are going to be more um, skeptical of those types of um, sort of un um, nonspecific claims, meaning that they are going to say, OK, what what percentage of proceeds are you donating and what is proceeds versus profits? I mean, because there is certainly, um, you know, there are certainly folks who I think have said a percentage of proceeds are going towards this. And when you dig down and you look at that percentage of proceeds, it's like, you know, a half a penny for every hundred bucks or something sort of that really feels, um, uh, disingenuous. And so my recommendation would be for, for listeners who are thinking of adding a social component to, if you decide to pursue the idea of having a give back component, I'm going to donate a pair of shoes every time you buy these. I'm going to donate proceeds from, you know, the sales of these that you really ask if, you know, if the give back component was published in a newspaper for everybody to see, um, would you feel okay with what it said? Um, because I don't think you can get away with saying that, that, you know, taking credit for something that's, um, relatively, um, itty bitty and expecting, you know, consumers now who are so hungry for transparency, um, to, to not dig in and then be really upset with you and potentially lose, um, you know, you lose that consumer likely for life because you've lost that trust. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I, I guess what I was trying to, and like I said, not doing it very well at all. So I, I apologize. I'm glad that you were able to glean a couple of things out of my, my fumbling there, but I was thinking back to, you know, I, I get calls all the time. I mean, weeks, every every week, people, you know, they made a product in their garage or they have a product that they're bringing over. And a lot of times they might embellish uh, to me, you know, what they did or how they did it or how they got it. or. Uh, and so before I take and put my company on the line and introduce it to Costco or, or somebody like that, I have to do my due diligence to make sure that what they said is, is authentic and, and mm-hmm. real. And like you were talking about authenticity. And so I was just thinking that, you know, as you're, as you're, this type of thing grows and you were just saying when you had a, uh, a swag bag that was made by human trafficking survivors and, you know, how do you, first of all, how do the companies get these p- people together to do one specific product? And then, uh, like I said, um, what do you guys go through yourselves to make sure that if they say they're coming from this specific group, that they really are. And before you answer, let me say, you know, recently I bought my wife this big basket from Whole Foods and I put a bunch of cool bass stuff in it, but attached to the basket was this, um, profile of the person who made it. And, um, I'm assuming that that's a little bit of like what you do. And I would have been crushed, you know, if I would have found out that that Mm -hmm. little tag on there was completely fake and you know, that person doesn't even exist and, um, they're a model. And, um, because it meant something to me, meant something to my wife when I gave it to her. And so I was wondering if that's a big part of what you guys are doing is making sure that who you're telling these people they're coming from is actually where the products are coming. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's core to our value proposition. So, um, you know, again, it's sort of vetting and auditing. So um, how, you know, we don't work with artisans, individuals, we work with artisan groups, meaning that the group has to be set up, they have to be incorporated as a nonprofit or a for-profit. Um, and then we go through a vetting process of understanding everything from, you know, what's their reputation in the community to who have they worked with previously. If they are a nonprofit, have they received grants from organizations that I trust that would have done due diligence on them? Um, and so it's really a function of um, reference checking, going through um, an application process that's rigorous, and then... Um, you know, auditing to the extent that you can with any of any of your partners. And when I say the extent that you can, meaning that just as, you know, I don't want Home Depot feeling like every, you know, two months they can pop in whenever they want and just visit our offices and me not feel like um, my space is invaded. Just like any, any business partner, you have to respect, um, treat them like a partner, not like just a vendor. Um, and so, we do our best to, to treat them like our partners and to um, create systems that we think allow for, I think, rigorous um, assessment and uh, very- Hey, big boxers. Just a quick announcement from TLB Consulting. Are you looking to scale your business this year? Are you looking to get your products on the shelf of a retailer this year? Well, guess what? Booking a coaching call with me has never been easier. I know based on the past 10 years of working with clients that it can be difficult to be a solopreneur. It can be difficult to scale your business into territory that you've never been to. That's why I have opened up more slots this year than I've ever done before. One of my goals this year is to work with more clients, more solopreneurs, more big boxers looking to get their products into retail than ever before. I want to work directly with you and share my experiences over the last 25 years of getting products into retail. I want to share those experiences with you. I want to talk to you from a place of somebody who's been there and I want to help you get to where I've gone. Like I said, it's never been easier. All you have to do is go to tlbconsulting.com, click on consulting, and then choose the time or the bundle that you want and get it scheduled. Let's kick off 2020 with a bang. Let's get you the information that you need. I'm looking forward to meeting you. Verification. It sounds like you get you have a huge amount of things going on there's a lot of components what do you think is the most fun what, what are you having the most fun doing well i really you know our our business with our social element is is i know a little bit different and to me personally i'm most excited when i see the economic opportunity that we create so you know working going and visiting some of our artisans and saying did you know that i just sold this product into macy's or i just sold it into home depot or i'm working on selling it into abc um to and seeing uh the excitement in their eyes because it's very validating for them um of course it's validating for us but it's validating for them as well to know that their craftsmanship and their work is so valued that you know other people will of that type of reputation would be interested in purchasing it. Um, the other thing that really excites me about what we do is we work with a lot of recycled materials. So we work with everything from um, literally oil drums that have been discarded in Haiti. We do a ton of beautiful metal work to working with recycled paper, um, working with um, discarded cow horn. So literally horns from cows that have been um, that are left over literally from a slaughterhouse that some of our artisans are literally collecting and creating beautiful product out of. And to me, when I, um, when I showcase a product and I see someone's reaction and they think the product is beautiful and high end and expensive. And, um, and then I tell them, Oh, well, did you know that this is made out of an upcycled oil drum? <laughs> that is so exciting to me. Like the surprise and the delight, like associated with seeing the reaction is just to me really, really 
um, encouraging and uh, very satisfying. That's amazing. And I, I, I love all of that. Um, you know, in my job, I get a lot of no's, you know, um, and I talk to my listeners about this all the time. You know, it takes a lot of knocking on doors, especially with retailers today, as opposed to maybe 15 years ago, um, to, to, to get them to listen or, or be interested. What, what would you say in, in your journey has been the most difficult from taking these products and then actually getting interest from retailers? Well, I mean, I think, you know, talking about no's is so important because it is, it is like, you know, setting yourself up when you start a business, you mentally have to prepare for like getting on the no train. You know, it's like, you have to know that like 49 out of 50 people are probably going to tell you no, Sure. whether that's pitching product or it's trying to find investors or getting a bank loan or whatever that dynamic may be. Um, I think mentally knowing that you're going to get far more no's than yeses is really important, um, especially for people who maybe previously when they didn't run a business and weren't necessarily in sales um, are used to being able to input X and output Y. Like if I work really hard, then I can achieve Y. Um, and sometimes it's just not as easy as that. So I think um, that's certainly been one of the lessons for me because I'm, I am um, – very, um, work focused and I've always worked, um, very, very hard and felt like I could grind something out. Like if I could work hard enough, I could make it happen. Um, and I found that, and you know, this business, that's not always the case. I can work my butt off and not, you know, not necessarily, um, win the contract or, or get the sale. Um, so that's interesting. Um, you know, I think an important lesson. And then as far as like the retail sort of pitching process goes, you know, another thing that I've learned is is that so much of it is about relationship building and um, about timing um, and about sort of consistently bringing new ideas to buyers. I mean, Macy's, which was our first big box retailer to land, I worked on, you know, relationships with different people for at least a year before we had our first order. And, you know, that was consistent interaction Um and not always sales-related interaction. So trying to actually build a relationship with people that worked there. And that was very, um, I think, an important process of them feeling like they wanted to then take a chance on, you know, me and our business and our product. And were those, when you were building relationships, were those buyers specifically or just in general people that held different positions in at Macy's or, or whatever retailer you were going after? Just people in general. I mean, I found that like oftentimes, um, you know, we've had buyers that have just found us and taken us on. Um, and that's fabulous because it's a very seamless process, but it's definitely the exception rather than the rule. A lot of times it just, it requires uh, relationship building so that you can have a champion within the organization who's pushing that a buyer take a look, you know, a serious look at your product um, you know, be able to articulate what they view as the value proposition of whatever your goods are. And, um, I, you know, I credit the champions that we've had within organizations as being really critical to securing orders for us in so many instances. So, so you're saying, and so we can break this down for the, for the big boxers out there, because, you know, we talk a lot, I mean, probably too much on different ways to really, shine and 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 be noticed because in a sea where buyers are looking at hundreds of products every week and they're most buyers are doing um, i've been in this business a really long time and so most buyers are doing the job that three or four buyers did 10 years ago and so you know just for them to look up from their desk and and uh and and take a moment to think about something that's not already on the shelves that they're dealing with is big and so i'm um, kind of breaking down what you're saying is is get a champion, find somebody either in a look in a store. So if you're at Macy's, maybe, uh, you know, connect with the store manager of that store or a district manager or somebody in the corporate office, maybe in marketing because of what you do, but really find somebody that's interested in what you're doing that you can create a relationship with. And then, um, they can help you from inside the organization, um, get that buyer to look up from their desk, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yes, Absolutely. Well, there you go. There you go, big boxers. That's uh, that's something new and and specific. And I know sometimes we'll go into local stores and 
Um, but uh, I'm glad that you used the one year, uh, the one year marker. Not that everything happens at a year; some things don't happen sooner or later. But uh, so often, unfortunately, you know, people build a product, they get it produced, they have it in their garage. And then they really feel like they've done the hard work. You know, that's the hard work. And now, man, all I'm going to do is show this to a buyer and bam, you know, it's going to be so awesome. And they're going to pick it up and it's going to go awesome and they're going to buy it right away. It takes time. And uh, and, and that can be, in some cases, you know, that time that you have to pass. And I, with my clients, I sometimes say, you know, we're going, over, we're going through the desert, okay? This is, you know, we have to travel from A to B through the desert. You, everybody has to make this trek. Nobody gets to shortcut it. Uh, and so I'm glad to hear you say um, that, you know, uh, for that particular thing, it took a year um, because it's important for people to know um, the process and what they're getting into. Totally. I mean, no question about it taking time and that, you know, I think the product development part is not to not to say that it's not critical. But I mean, I remember they they told me in business school over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that it doesn't matter if you have like created lightning in a bottle, if you cannot sell it, it does not matter. (laughs) And so, I mean, they would say like 90% of it, you know, is sales, meaning that like, that's the hardest part. And because anybody, I mean, again, not to poo poo product development, product development's incredibly critical and having good product that has a very clear value proposition is critical. But if you can't sell it, um, yeah, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter, which is why I'm such a big fan of the, the idea around product development of doing sort of um, sampling and seeing how people respond to the product on a much smaller and local level, even if that means having, you know, a bunch of people over to respond to the product um, and just getting their feedback. I've had, you know, several even artisan producers that have been vendors for us, um, vendor, we don't normally call them vendors, but just for your big boxers, that would be sort of the equivalent term that have, you know, decided to set up shop and have decided on creating, let's say, 10 SKUs and then created, you know, I don't know, 100 to 500 units of each without ever testing any of those individual products in the market, Hmm. even on a tiny scale. And so often I think this happens in retail where you see the sort of creation of a large, you know, large quantities um, of SKUs that haven't been tested and, you know, I think that's, that can be so tough because then oftentimes these businesses run out of cash and they have to, they have to fold um, rather than, you know, taking on a much smaller, less expensive version to see how people respond, this like minimally viable product concept, seeing how people respond. And then if they respond positively and or they give you feedback, that then allows you to iterate and, um, you know, tweak the product without sitting on thousands of old SKUs that, you know, weren't the right version. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. I currently have a client um, who somebody talked her, um, unfortunately, into her first purchase. Her first purchase being sixty five thousand units. Oh my god, that's <laughs> like breaks my heart for her. Right, and um, and we and we've recently found out that there is a not a flaw. I mean, her product is amazing, and people really love it when you explain it. But it would be better if we had done something also additionally with it and packaged it with something else. And so we're go- we're having to go back now and, and, and try to do that, and, and they're stuck with a lot of stock. And so a um, really good lesson, uh, Big Boxers, is that, yeah, you know, start small and, and vet it out and, and sell it. I always say if, you know, it has to be interesting to more than just your family. And uh, uh, because, you know, your family, of course, is going to say, oh, it's awesome, and yeah, it's great. But, um, you know, so often – you know, people do make it, they think about it themselves, they make a bunch and then they try to sell it and, and they're the only ones that think it's cool or they miss some critical part that, that people are now telling them. Um, and it also goes back into what you were saying uh, when we were talking about social. You know, if you don't always build up your social, if you're not constantly working on your reach and and who you're talking to and the partnerships that you're making online, then when you build that product, you don't have anybody to show it to. You can't get any feedback because you you can't just start your social right then because it's going to take you a couple of years to get it going. So, um, that's a great point. We, um, you know, we, we started our social, we started our social uh, over a year before we launched a single product because it was built building community. So we communicated what we stood for and who we are and that, you know, we communicated when we would be launching our actual product, but we were able to gain like, 
I don't know how many tens of thousands of Facebook likes based on promoting who we were as an organization before we had a single product available for sale. Yeah, I mean, Jane, you're totally speaking my you're speaking my language here. I try to tell people again and again and again, and of course, people don't want you know. Sometimes it's hard to spend money on on something that you're not getting tangible results out of. But again, in an overall business plan, you have to look at the high level part of it. And uh, I'll never forget um, there was a, a couple on uh, Shark Tank uh, years a couple of years back, but they had this online business that they had just scaled massively, and the way she scaled it was she built her social, and then she would find a cool item, and she would put it out there for people to vote on. And if they voted well, then she would carry it on her website, and then it would just blow up. But if they didn't vote well, she had only really bought one. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't any big it wasn't any big loss to her. And mm-hmm. so she, it was just like, oh, okay, no, no, nobody likes that. But she would only put things on her website that uh, were voted very successfully. Therefore, every product on her website did well. It's super smart. I mean, I love that. Um, Yeah, I love that approach. I think it's, you know, you test um, and then see how people respond. And if, you know, you can verify that they respond positively, then you can invest more into that product. So, Jane, tell me what your pitch is. You know, if I'm a if I'm a buyer, um, I mean, are buyers responding today to the social aspect of what you're doing? Or are you still getting a big group of them saying, hey, it sounds good, I like it, but it's not sellable in our environment? I mean, how, how is your pitch going and, and how is it being responded to? So our value proposition to a big box retailer, so not a corporate that we would sell into that would then give away our product, like conference bags or corporate gifts, but someone that's going to have to resell our product Our value proposition is millennials and Gen Z and increasingly other generations are looking for product that has authenticity, that has a social component associated with it, and has a more transparent supply chain. We can offer you product from 25 plus countries um, with a range of price points and aesthetics with a single purchase order and a single point of contact um, in a range of categories. And to them, that's very appealing because oftentimes they want this type of product, but they don't have the bandwidth to vet individual artists and producers who maybe don't have the production capacity to make it worthwhile for them to go through the vetting process or even market the products. Um, So we're able essentially to aggregate producers and do a single purchase order that makes it very attractive for a big boxer to buy from us. Okay, and are they and are they really seeing that? I mean, do you do you find that they're most of the time they they see it and they want to act on it, or they're seeing it and they would like to act on it, but it's not right right now? Or what, what's kind of been the reaction? I would say the majority get it and are acting on it. Um, like so, for corporate orders, for example, we've worked with really progressive brands like Levi's, and then we've worked with really traditional brands like banks, like UBS, and. You know, they both know that they need to communicate to their investors, whether that's their public company or they have private investors, to their employees and to consumers what their values are. And they can do that partly through their procurement process. The folks who I feel like communicate to me, oh, our consumers are not going to get it, um, I would say that that's an increasingly small community and um, I hope to see, you know, that change in the near future. I mean, I think that, you know, we, where you get into sort of challenging dynamics for someone like us is if it's a super value-focused brand um, that really just doesn't have the consumer to support um, slightly premium prices versus, you know, just flat-out mass-produced, maybe, you know, sort of off-shelf-labeled product. Right, that their main price point is, you know, $9 or $19 or something something like that. And that probably would just not end up on your target list. Yeah, it would be tough for us to make that work. Um, and they, their consumer is probably sort of less um, plugged into that value proposition and maybe sort of much more plugged into, um, you know, what is the least expensive option of, you know, the basic sort of commodities that I need Right. Um, to, you know, feed my family. Um, that sort of is, would be, 
the the tier of stores that would struggle to um, make our product move because, you know, most of our product is um, not commoditized, right? So we're not selling milk or, um, you know, something that most families need to buy every day. And so, so um, it really needs to be, there has to be some, even if it's small, level of disposable income available to the consumer at the big boxer um, for it to seem to, to make work for our, our brand for, to the market's brand. Okay. I can, I, I would totally, um, I can accept that and, and think that, uh, and, and, and see that, 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 that would be that. I mean, every time we get a new client, we go through that process, right. Of, you know, picking out the retailers, we tier them one t- tier one tier two, tier three, based on how w- well we feel that they're going to react to the product. So I would, um, I can completely see where you're coming from on that. If I were to, like, if we hadn't met yet and I had just heard of, of you and somebody had said, hey, you know, how do you think that's probably going? I would have said most likely that it's going well, but where they're probably um, reaching a little bit of a, a narrow in the road is that buyers probably get it for the retailers that they're taking it to, but are struggling to figure out how to present it. Um, is, that, is that true or not true? Meaning POP wise, and tell the story in in the display area of the product that you're trying to sell to a true retailer. You know, I think there are certainly um, a range of, of ways that brands have decided to communicate to the consumer what the value proposition is of the product. And so sometimes um, they want to be really specific about what the story is behind the good. And sometimes they don't want to mention it at all. It's just that they know that they have bought the product ethically and they don't feel compelled to, to even necessarily share the fact that it's organic cotton or it was made by, you know, vulnerable women or fill in the blank. Um, sometimes they, they just leave that off and that's just, um, they just made that purchase because they feel like, you know, the product is solid and, um, it's a reflection internally of their values. But most of the time, you know, brands and, and retailers do want us to share information on a hang tag. That tends to be the way that we communicate. Um, it tends to be, you know, more, um, less wonky language, right? So not everybody wants to say this was made by human trafficking survivors. <laughs> Maybe they just want to say, you know, this, this product was made by women or this product helps economically empower people. Um, or this product, um, you know, provides jobs for fill in the blank. Um, so you have sort of different tiers of, of how people choose to communicate the social message. And we're perfectly okay with that because we want to make buying, um, products that we believe have been ethically produced. We want that to be mainstream. So eventually maybe they won't even feel compelled to share that because they feel like that's just, um, you know, commonplace. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's. That's great. I was going to kind of, I think you may, maybe had answered my question because I was going to ask you, you know, what do you prefer? Do you prefer to tell the story or do you prefer to let the product stand on its own and, and, and be judged on its own just as a product? But uh, I think you kind of answered that, that you're fine with either. I am. Yeah, I'm fine with either. I do think regardless, the product has to stand on its own because we don't want pity purchases, right? So it (laughs) can't be sold by the product. Like it can't be sold by the story um, because even if you are successful in selling the product, it doesn't mean that they're going to use the product if they think it's ugly, right? Or they don't like it or it's not functional or whatever it is. So the product has to stand on its own. I always say lead with the product, close with the story. Right. Yeah. Well, and of course, you know, most likely the buyer would have never bought the product if it was just hideous. And, you know, most buyers, even though their their heartstrings are pulled by the story, are still going to hold fast that the product has to be good quality and aesthetically pleasing. And they really need to think that it would sell no matter what they put it out there doing. Um, so I would agree with I would agree with you on that. OK, listen, last question. Um, I don't know if you ever read the book Tipping Point. Um. I have. Uh, it's been a while. Is this Malcolm Gladwell? Right, right. Point? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, it's been a while. It's been a while, but yes. It's <laughs> been a while for me too. But I was wondering if you feel like your business has tipped or is it getting ready to tip or do you still have a while before it tips? You know, I have such big ambitions for this business that I feel like we're just getting started. 
Um, so objectively, I know if people hear that, you know, we're already selling to these big boxers, they think like, wow, you've made so much progress. Like you've made it. Um, and I always say, oh my gosh, like, I feel like we're just getting started. And it's true. I actually feel like we are just getting started. I think we have a long way to go. Um, I want to be in every store. I want to the market to be in every store, whether we are producing private label or we are branded or co-branded or whatever that may be, because we have the ability to do everything from apparel to home decor to a huge, you know, everything in between. And so um, I feel like we're just getting started. That said, I think we have incredible momentum. I think we have um, a great team. I think we have a lot of high level support for what we're doing and how we're doing it. And so I hope to, you know, be growing very quickly. Well, it sounds like you're already doing uh, amazing. And, you know, recently we had a a big mall in in Florida that went out of business, unfortunately, and it was called, um, geez, it wasn't the artisan. It was, uh, but it was close to that. And what it was, Mm -hmm. was this just big open space in a mall environment that was made with, um, basically gated uh booths where you know you could be an artisan and have your own product and maybe you made handbags or there was this cool guy in there that made uh that um trimmed um uh you know bonsai trees and he did classes and unfortunately they didn't draw enough traffic and it closed down and then recently at one of our local malls i saw that a couple of the artisans had banded together to get a storefront in the mall called Altamont Marketplace. And it really is a small offshoot of that where they, you know, man their own booths and they make their own product. And, um, and so again, you know, to your point into the movement that you're doing, I think, um, if you're not, if you haven't tipped already, um, I'm sure that that is not far away from you, depending, like you said, on your own, um, on your own ambitions and where you feel that the, the, the business is going. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast, and thanks so much. I do have one last question. It has nothing to do with your business or anything or my business or anything that we've been talking about, but it's something I ask everybody that's on the podcast because it's interesting to me, and that is productivity. So um, as far as getting everything done, you're the CEO of this emerging company. It was, it's, it's, you, know, got a, you have a ton of balls in the air, and, and probably you're doing a million different things. How do you keep it all straight? Is there an app that you use? Are you super traditional and write everything down? What do you use to keep it all straight? So I'm a big fan of Asana, um, which is a project management application and dashboard. Um, so you can access it both on a laptop or desktop, but also on your phone. And it allows you to create different project streams and sub projects within that project stream. You can create due dates. You can tag your team members, um, who are responsible with due dates for specific, um, objectives associated with that project. And that has been very helpful because it allows us to keep track of, you know, not only things like where we are in the sales discussions with different um, businesses, but also other things that we're working on, our content calendar or, um, you know, conversations with potential investors or, um, you know, when we as a team are doing our next retreat. I mean, really anything that requires input and you want to have sort of saved um, in a cloud type system that you can access from your phone and or um, a laptop or desktop. I'm a huge fan of Asana. Okay. So you use that for your own like personal productivity, keeping track of your own stuff, as well as your team and projects and everything. I, it's really, yes. I mean, certainly for my professional time, I use it. And for our team as well, um, we use Asana. I mean, personally, I'm a huge fan of Google Calendar. I mean, I sort of live and die by um, a calendar. I don't usually write things down. I'm actually super ADD, so I have to write everything into the calendar. So if I know I have to do five things today, those five things go into a calendar as a knowing like when I'm going to be doing them, when I will be working on those things. Um, and that also allows me with Asana to set due dates for myself of when I need to do things by. Um, and that really allows for structure when you have a lot of moving parts, it, it really allows you to sort of stay, um, stay moving efficiently forward. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. Asana, people, so I'll put that in the in the show notes, and um, and uh, so you guys can all click on that if you want to check that out. Well, listen, Jane, it has been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I know that all the listeners got a tremendous amount of uh, value out of your journey and what you've been doing and how successful you guys have been. 
and uh, hats off to you for your ingenuity. And uh, we really appreciate appreciate you and having you on the show. Thank you for having me. Hey, big boxers. Jane has left the building. Wow. That was awesome. I hope you guys got as much out of that as I did. She's amazing, right? Did you guys feel that? She has really figured some things out. And a couple of things I took out of this uh, this conversation was that she has, you know, tapped into something unique. She's got a story that she can tell, right? She's got these people. They're either, you know, human trafficking survivors or they've survived war. But they're really pulling their lives together. And the sale of these products is really helping get that done. So that gives her a compelling story, number one. She has this quality control that she's going through. So they're producing quality products that people can really grab a hold of and use and want. And they're quality and they last a long time. So she's got a good product. And then lastly, she's got a good business model, right? So she has a specific demographic of people that are concerned with what she's concerned with, the millennials, biggest demographic in the country. They're concerned with making things better. They're concerned with buying products that are shareable, right? Think about that, guys. If you thought about just one other thing or one thing um, about what the millennials are concerned with, they want to sell or, excuse me, they want to buy things that are shareable. They want to share them. And in order for them to feel good about that, there has to be a story behind it, and it has to be compelling, and it has to fit within what they're wanting and what they're doing and what they care about. And Jane has really tapped into that. So takeaways here are, what can you do to tap into the same type of thing? What story do you have? What product impact are you getting around? What are you making better? What does your product make better? How does it impact people? And how can you wrap that up into a great, awesome story that has impact? That's the takeaway. Jane, thanks so much for being with us on our very first inspirational story. Uh, we had a great time, and we hope to have you back. Big boxers, don't forget to um, go to uh, Facebook on the shelf now and hit join. We're uh, looking forward to having you in our Facebook group. And coming up this week, guys, uh, we're going to be interviewing, once again, Nikki Jackson, CEO, founder of RangeMe. And you need to get your questions in. We have a question and answer uh, section in there scheduled. And you need to get your questions in ASAP so that we can get them on the list. All right, listen. If you're liking the podcast, share it on social. If you want to ask us a question, you can hit us up on Twitter at TLB Consult, on our Facebook page, TLB Consulting, or on Facebook at TLB Consulting also. Excuse me, so the website's TLBConsulting.com. And then, of course, join the group on the shelf now. You can ask them in there. Great spending time with you. Until next time, we look forward to seeing your products on the shelf.